I feel, I feel like last time we did this, I got up early and I like got dressed because I was like, I can't talk to Nancy in my pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> so apologize if I'm, if I'm a little bit more scattered. What time is it there now? It's 6 a.m. Oh my gosh. No, oh, shit. Fun. You've really got the short end of the stick here, haven't you? Got a nice 7 p.m. just sat here with a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'll kick it off. Ready? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Think so. Good morning. My name is Shane. I'm a furniture conservator living and working in Sydney, Australia. Good evening. My name is Harry. I'm a furniture maker living in North Bristol, England. And we are joined today by cabinet maker and author. Nancy Hiller. In Bloomington, Indiana. Fantastic. If anyone's out there who doesn't know, Nancy is, is a well-regarded cabinet maker and author. You've written for Fine Woodworking and Popular Woodworking. And with Lost Art Press, you've been working as well? Yeah. And um, you've published a number of books. Probably some of the more famous ones would be, well, Kitchen Think, which I still haven't bought yet, but I really want and um, making things work, yeah. which I know at least helped inspire one of my friends to move to England oh. and pursue their dream of being a cabinet maker. Oh. <laughs> but for the topic today, the reason I was really keen to get in touch with you and one of the reasons why I, I became actually quite a big fan of yours was because of the fact that you wrote two other books or published two other books, which are a, a whole book on Hoosier cabinets. Right. And um, the collection of essays called Preservation, uh, Historic Preservation in Indiana. Right. I don't know how you feel about those works in comparison. Well, it's but... not in comparison. They're all very different. And so the Hoosier Cabinet in Kitchen History is, that was my first book. And I was asked to write it by the so-called sponsoring editor at the Indiana University Press at the time. So in other words, she was, part of her job was to get new books for their trade mm -hmm. book line. So that was not one that I would have thought of writing, but with my interest in kitchen history, the editor, who was a client of mine at the time, my former employee and I had done her kitchen cabinets, and so she asked if I would like to write that book, and I ended up saying yes. And then the next one, the one that you mentioned, um, Historic Preservation in Indiana, is a collection of essays about preservation broadly and diversely understood, which I pitched to the Indiana University Press, and they gave me a contract, and so I found the different writers I wanted to submit essays for that and edited it and, you know. Yeah. But, you know, that book has been far more um, sort of esoteric in its appeal, not least because of the title, Historic yeah. Preservation in Indiana. I wanted it to be clear that while being written by people who were mostly in Indiana and about places that are mostly in Indiana offered inspiration and practical advice to people in the field of preservation anywhere so yeah and i i genuinely think it does a, a really good job i i think the the world of conservation would do wonders by having just the preface and the introduction of that be required reading because <laughs> i think that they're wonderful <laughs> and D duncan campbell who i emailed this week on your on your request um, wrote the preface to it, which is this incredible call to action where he discusses the, the founding of the National Parks Program and the relation between environmental conservation and, and historic preservation. And it's just really something else. I'm hoping to talk to him later on. Um, and then your introduction, which follows and has the um, an interesting metaphor choice in it for preservation, which is a decaying turkey on the side of the road wrapped in plastic. <laughs> right. It was just too potent a symbol for me not to incorporate it into some piece of writing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good because it's, you know, this, this piece on historic preservation and then you get um, this opening paragraph talking about a, yeah, a wrapped up turkey on the side of the road that's just decaying over the course of a matter of weeks. Well, I mean, plastic. it's important to question what we mean by preservation or anything else. And obviously, as the turkey shows, preservation 
has multiple meanings. Not all of them <laughs> delightful. Yeah, and in this case, the it's the plastic wrap trying to observe something from the natural elements and the and the way that nature naturally takes things, which I think is great. Um, and also for for I think for a book on preservation that that starts with a call to action to it immediately follows up with something that maybe questions immediately or or doesn't even necessarily paint preservation in the best light but in a much more realistic light which I thought was fantastic oh good I'm glad because I know that I think some of the people who contributed essays to the book thought it was a strange way (laughs) to start but you know that's that's what I find enjoyable is positing strange ways of looking at things because they're usually quite fruitful i think yeah i last last week i used the metaphor of of being tailgated to describe how i fail yeah. to pay attention to what i'm doing so yeah the pitch the episode for this week i don't know if you know this nancy but we were intending to go into a series of episodes on design and and this isn't on design necessarily <laughs> but i think this is kind of my way of kicking into it as a conservator and I know that when I spoke to you on the phone a couple of weeks ago, I kind of pitched the idea of what this was going to be, and you told me I needed to get more specific. And then I wrote two pages on the subject, and I'm still not sure I completely understand it. <laughs> Did I really say you need to get more specific? Huh. You, you said, I think you need to work out what, um, what your... Your idea is a little bit more clearly. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to sound like, you know, a teacher in high school. (laughs) I think I was just like, it was just like, you know, when you're talking with someone and you're sharing ideas and you're just offering feedback and it was that. It was more like brainstorming, not saying, excuse me, young man. You know, <laughs> no, it absolutely wasn't like that. But I have I have written two more pages on this, and I still don't fully. I still have so many questions because it's something. Uh, let me just get into it. the The theme yeah. of this is um, based on something you said when you were quoting Duncan Campbell, which is it's not capital I important. So in in conservation and art in general, there there seems to be this dubious conversation about what holds value. And I've seen it said in, in conservation fields, you know, certain objects are conserved instead of restored or repaired. They, they're deserving of a, a conservation effort, whether it's because they were owned by someone with a name or made by someone with a name or represent some important aspect of, of history, capital I important. And that's where that kind of phrase comes from. These are the quote unquote important things. Right. And, and there's also the same, I think, Harry, you might find when, when making that there yeah. are certain things that are, are of value to make or fine furniture or worthy Definitely. of respect. And, um, and these concepts bug the crap out of me. <laughs> and I, I got into, well, actually, quite interestingly, I'll, I'll take a step back. My family's from Indiana. My parents were born in Gary, Indiana, and I grew up there until I was about five and then moved to New England. And I always found that New England had a slightly more rich um, material aspect. There were really interesting things in buildings, and I remember Merrillville, Indiana, as being a sea of cement and car dealerships in my young brain. Merrillville. Yeah. Okay, well, there you go. So. (laughs) Yeah. So when I saw... When I when I got into conservation restoration, I was really intrigued by I was working for an environmental charity, picking up stuff that people were getting rid of and working with everyday objects and fixing things for people that were going to go back into their homes. And I just adored the human connection of everything that, that this one object, although whatever history it may have, has been owned by someone it had marks on it by someone by a person the tools i were using were secondhand and they'd been cherished by someone beforehand and then i went into conservation and it seemed to be i got a job afterwards and the restorers like ah this piece is worth this much money and this piece was a chippendale piece and that seemed to be where the value came from so when i came across historic preservation indiana as a book i was i was first of all intrigued because again my memory of indiana was car dealerships and I I was really excited that that there was a preservation book out there that was potentially about a place that I know of as just somewhere that n- normal people live and have gone about their lives and as far as I know there have been no kings in Indiana right and and it, it really is kind of a a beautiful book about 
saving history and there, there seems to be a lot of effort in that. And so I, I, I want to talk about this idea of not capital I important, whether it's pragmatic or utilitarian or vernacular or whatever term. These, there's something here that I care a lot about and I don't fully understand what that is and I don't have a good definition for it. Um, so I'm kind of throwing it to the two of you. And, and firstly, to, to you, Ned, do you, did you perhaps struggle to, to get people to understand why you wanted to write a book on preservation in Indiana? No, I didn't. That wasn't a struggle for me at all because, and I wasn't writing it, you know, I was putting together essays because part of that was I wanted it to appeal to people um, who weren't just looking for a guidebook, but might enjoy an inspiring essay, such as the one by Scott Russell Sanders about the courthouse, the one by Lauren about Maple Grove Road, or the absolutely fascinating adventure story that Edith Sarah wrote about the Potoka Wildlife Refuge. So I wanted it to, I wanted the genre to be diverse in the book. I didn't just want sort of quasi-scientific research paper essays. Like, here, here's a book with some interesting perspectives on historic preservation across the board, and it's not like a slog to read. Mm. It might actually be interesting from a literary point of view, you know. So that was the first thing. But second, I had by that point been actively involved in our local historic preservation community for several years. And it was clear to me that in this part of Indiana, I mean, you have to understand the context for this book is um, Monroe County and Bloomington um, don't have any significant river. And the reason that's important in a historic preservation discussion is there's very little architecture from before the 19th century. Um, Mm. And um, not that much from the 19th century left here either. And because it just wasn't a major, there was no major industry because we weren't on a river. So when railroads became, they took over as the dominant means of transportation from rivers, Bloomington's economy certainly took off. But until that point, we just were a little town really, albeit with a campus of the state university. So it was clear to me that The field of preservation here in Indiana, and especially in the part of Indiana I know, needed constant injections of enthusiasm and interest because Mm. it's really easy to neglect. And in fact, at this point, all these years after I worked on that book, I mean, Bloomington's um, old buildings have been even more decimated. Yeah. You know, especially the ones that are not capital I important. So it wasn't unusual to me or to those who know me that I would want to work on that kind of book. But to go back to what you were saying about preservation of things that aren't widely recognized as important. Whenever I go up to Chicago for work, I'm driving and... I am always, I, I I never take the interstate into Chicago. I go on the old state roads and county roads that go through all of this incredible industrial area to do with shipping because it's right on the edge of Lake Michigan, the southern edge of Lake Michigan. And so you're driving along and there are all of these fabulous old buildings from probably the early 20th century and maybe a little bit before that. Many of them are totally abandoned and, you know, in varying states of disrepair. And some of them are still in use, but it's just this amazingly rich picture of shipping. The, you know, the Mm. commerce involved in shipping 
And then there are all these small, more like bergs or proto-towns that have been absorbed into the greater Chicago area and greater Gary area. And, and I mean, it is like going through history. It's sort of analogous to geological history. You go through all of these different ethnic areas and you go from heavy industry to lighter industry to service businesses and then before you know it you're in this residential slash university area of Hyde Park in on the south side of Chicago and so you can just see the these layers you know of development and history and so and I every time I come through that industrial area I just think you know, these buildings are incredible. Some of them are absolutely gorgeous old brick and steel buildings. And, you know, I would give my eye teeth to have a building like that to transform into something to live and work in, you know? And are they being preserved? I don't know. Are they important? You bet they're important. They tell a really important part of the history of shipping and car- commerce of all kinds in this central part of the country but you know there they are just so much of it is just sitting empty (laughs) so yeah i I think there's something about that industry aspect it it relates kind of to tools as well i don't know it's like a connection to the fact that things were made and that the world around you was made and it was made by people in some way right and not just it didn't just spring out of you know, fully formed off of a shelf at a store. Yeah, which which for me is actually, I think, really important because growing up um, in, in a certain lifestyle in, in America, I, I kind of grew up thinking that everything had, had been there forever for some reason. And I had I didn't even have like a connection to the idea that my, my food came from somewhere. It just came from the store. And so these mm-hmm. reminders that, that all of this was built and built by people is extremely valuable I agree definitely I remember when um, uh, there's a Weald and Downland Museum next to Westine an yeah. amazing collection of old old buildings yeah. one of the things that I, I loved most there was that when they get these old buildings there's all this agricultural stuff inside them and they've they've stored them now they're not on on public view but they have this storage room down there it's just oh yeah filled with all the the tools and the wagons and just chunks of whatever that were pulled out of the buildings yeah and very carefully looked after which just almost brought me to tears that somebody had cared so much about these things right yeah that was amazing to see i actually took a note of will and downland to mention today as well i think it it kind of represents what you're talking about with capital I important objects very well because also the buildings they've got there they're kind of deconstructed and put back together brick for brick almost but they're there's nothing necessarily special about the buildings they're just they're just buildings and I think it's so lovely to see them put back together and cared for so well and kind of arranged in such a nice way but without that kind of doesn't feel like a museum, does it, Shane? No, not not really. But it, at it the same like time, it does because you definitely know you're not you're not just walking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's an amazing place. But yeah. that's because I mean, all of this topic that you raised is really related to an important shift in intellectual questioning and study that has taken place over the last. 30 or so years, I think, in certainly in academe, you know, with the rise of women's history and black history and gender studies, i.e. everyone who contributes to daily life and and what we call the world has a place. Mm. And the people who rise to the top in whatever system you may be talking about or looking at are not the only ones who whose lives are worthy of study or whose homes no. and clothing or pots and pans are <laughs> important with a capital of I, a capital I simply by virtue of their association with this important person i mean you can't have important people without the army of unimportant people who give birth to them, wipe their bums, you know, (laughs) feed them, bring them up, spank them, teach them values, you know, all the rest. And so, and I think that that has been a really good 
if not easy shift in what, at least among academics, may be considered worthy of study. And you see that in historic preservation and furniture making. You certainly see it with, like, the preservation of the Tenement Museum in New York. And um, now I'm not going to... The Jeffrey Museum in London, with its Mm -hmm. room sort of scenes of different rooms from historic period. Hmm. You know, when certainly when they did the sort of mid-century one, maybe it was from the 60s. I mean, that was an ordinary interior. It wasn't like, you know... The Irwin Miller House in Columbus, Indiana, which was designed by a famous architect, and, you know, everything about it is associated with money and fame, and it's very cool, but you have a broadening of what's considered um, worthy of study, and that's, I think, been really excellent. And so, for example, when I, shortly after I bought the property where my husband and I now live, um, there was this decrepit house that had been built on on the property in the 1940s during the Depression. And it was clearly just built by people who had a few tools and some very rudimentary knowledge yeah. of how to put together a building. And over the years, that building had been quote-unquote improved in various ways <laughs> that actually totally undermined the structure and caused it to begin significantly deteriorating by the time I came along faced with the decision whether to restore the house or replace it I was planning to restore it and my partner at the time said that would be foolish so I hired Duncan Campbell to come by and give me his opinion thinking that Mm -hmm. he would say no no of course you've got to save the house he said bring on the bulldozer you know with regard to the house because it had been so compromised by so many layers but he said the building i think you should preserve is the little it was a little kind of lean to shed roof totally crude little outbuilding where the previous owners had kept chickens and he said those are the kinds of buildings I really like to see preserved Hmm. because they hold within them so much in there's such a valuable record of how people actually lived on small pieces of property you know with a few fruit trees and maybe a cow and some chickens and maybe a pig or two you know and anyway so I always enjoy remembering that comment about the outbuilding because it was just this totally crude structure Mm. yeah in in your introduction you kind of talk about the reasons why we want to we we feel this desire to preserve things and you kind of break it up between instrumental things like practical things things that that you can give um, quantified value to essentially like, oh, it's it has an environmental value to save these things, which is one of the reasons I got started, or it has a financial value to save these things. Right. Or potentially it has a historical knowledge that kind of, it tells you the story of, of what people were like. But then you also kind of partially dismiss that a little in the interview and say, yeah, but that's not really always why we get into these things. There's definitely an emotional connection to some of these things. And you pick something up that was old and used by someone else and you wonder what it was like and you think about that and I I wonder if there's some of that in those buildings as well that first building you described sounds I'm totally intrigued by it and want to know more about what those people were like who had to make that oh I know the house you mean yeah yeah I know I wish I haven't ever I mean the thing is these are not the people whose stories are recorded because they were quote just ordinary people you know and And judging by the look of the interior of the house when I bought it at auction, they were not in their, not living their best life at that point. Mm. (laughs) Let me put it that way. (laughs) And that's one of the things, you know, some of us come to old places or old things with these sort of idealistic, romantic notions about, oh my God, it's someone's home, you know. Yeah. But then... I've often wondered, what if I found out that this person was the head of the local KKK chapter? You know, how would I feel about preserving their home? (laughs) So I think it's important to challenge 
myself, certainly, and, and, you know, think about, okay, well, that's important. That's, it's important to take note of that because that wouldn't disqualify me from being interested in the thing or the place, but it certainly would temper my, um, romantic inclinations when it comes to seeing things that were made by someone else a long time ago. Yeah. To shift slightly, because there's kind of there's a kind of a two-parter to this one is definitely the preservation aspect but then there's also the the making aspect which i want to discuss both of you make furniture or have made furniture mm. um and and nancy actually you wrote for that thing i think it was on fine woodworking just published this last week talking about success oh right um, yeah and i know that when we spoke the other week you you said you've never sought the need to um to, to work for famous people or, you know, work for celebrities or anything. But also in your, in that fine woodworking article, you wrote that you do a lot of built-ins and that built-ins are sometimes disregarded or seen as lesser. Right. Um, it, is there, I guess, ha- it can be, I think, nerve-wracking when getting into the field to want to be valued as a maker but you might, that, that leads to a desire to do new designs that no one else has ever seen or to yeah. show off your fine craftsmanship in every way. That isn't necessarily what everybody actually needs. And I wonder as, as, as a maker, how you've professionally come to where you're at in, and if you've struggled with not feeling adequate or having to convince people that there's value in your work in some way. Well, I think my whole career as a woodworker has been characterized by some degree of struggle which is mostly um (laughs) self-created it's partly (laughs) it partly comes from what i now recognize has been a lifelong need for validation um partly due to early family experiences but it also comes from being a woman in a traditionally male field and 30 or 40 years ago, it was very different. I mean, there were very few women in the field. And even like five years ago, I, I to this day even, I still have people who don't know me as a woodworker or as a person and they hear that I'm a woodworker and, and you know, sometimes they'll ask, silly questions or make revealing comments along the lines of my wife does exactly the same kind of work you do (laughs) and maybe she does but more likely is that he is completely unfamiliar with what I do and he is making some gross assumptions and so it does continue and so there's been I mean as a basically kind of stubborn person who doesn't like to see stupidity go unaddressed and I I have plenty of my own examples that I come up with of stupid behavior myself but you know I will challenge it and so that's become kind of part of who I am professionally is the person who says why are all you people so dismissive of kitchens just because they aren't fine furniture and do you not know anything about the history of you know like about social history and the fact that historically in this country and many western countries we have simply privileged what is public and and the public has historically been the realm of men you know and so we've always given the highest respect and the most attention to things that were made by or for men and especially men who are quote important unquote Mm. and Mm. whether because of their wealth or because of their political influence etc but you know as I mentioned earlier and this is certainly no new concept people don't get to be important by themselves and so it's important to broaden how we see them and to recognize the other people who have contributed to their achievements I don't know if I went too far off topic there. I loved it, though. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How did you, um, considering what you said about kind of coming as a woman in uh, making furniture, how was the experience with studying 
That was in England. Was it in London? Where was that? It was at the Isle of Ely College in Wisbeach. Okay. Nineteen seventy nine. I started and and finished in nineteen eighty. I just did the first section and. Um, yeah. So I assume it's fair to say you were outnumbered as a female. Yeah, I mean, I was the only woman in that course, but there were other women in courses that used the same facility, the same workshop. So, for example, there was a sort of retail display. I can't remember the name of it, but it was retail display, and that was full of women who were learning to build displays for shop windows primarily okay you know it's fascinating to think of this historically because of what's happened to retail in the internet age and especially the kinds of big fancy department stores that many of these young women would have gone to work for you know they had to build learn to build props and shelves and small cabinets and so there were women who used the workshop they just weren't in my training course my program yes And they weren't in the shop at the same time, usually. Mm. But I don't know if you wanted to go back to the whole question of built-ins versus freestanding furniture. Yeah, I I do. I want to... I guess I want to nail down that... I don't know. I kind of want to throw it to Harry a little bit and to you. Do you ever have a commission or somebody's Mm. interested in something and you find yourself trying to to make it fancier than it needs to be for them? Um, Harry, you go first. I've (laughs) definitely found that. And recently, I've got a good example of it. I've the gentleman down in Southampton who has a shop. He's a member of the Heritage Crafts Association and he kind of makes drinks with foraged ingredients. Really cool shop. And he wants this big display unit to kind of exhibit crafted items from other members of the Heritage Crafts Association. So he's looking at this big, big display unit. It's kind of, it's about two and a half meters by two and a bit meters. It's almost square, big thing. Um, And it's kind of fitted in a in a not really an alcove because it's accessible from both sides but it's fitted in this area and I was hesitant because mainly because I'm I don't enjoy working on site very much which is the main reason I lean towards the freestanding stuff when I worked before I studied at West Dean I worked in a, in the little shop in the town near me here a lot of what we did was was kitchens and that kind of thing and I really enjoyed it I I, I enjoyed the how much you can transform the room and how much you can do for that family and and it and now kind of working on smaller freestanding stuff it, it it's a different walk away i think after that delivery day or after that final day of fitting it i've delivered a small table or a cabinet or whatever it might be freestanding unit and it's great it's a great addition to the room but the the fitted piece is kind of you change the room it feels very different but i think going back to how it's kind of looked down upon by a lot of makers i think that that's right and i see that all the time but i I find myself doing it and and i and i and i think for me the reason is at this point in my career which is very early on i feel there's great benefit in focusing on something more narrow than what we were doing in the shop before i went to westin which was just about anything anyone wanted to, to do with wood so that's kind of the only reason and this unit down in Southampton we are working together to design it essentially so it's freestanding mainly because I don't want to do the work on site and I don't really have a good reason for that at all are you yeah. sure I mean because right now I can give you a good reason COVID <laughs> well yeah very true <laughs> I mean I've written a very couple true. of blog posts that find woodworking the prose corner about yeah the- changing how I design things and build them in order to expedite the installation on site because of the pandemic. Because I don't want people in the room or ideally in the house, you know, and so that means you really have to do it a lot faster than I ordinarily would. And there are ways of modifying the design for that. And so I think it's so I can certainly understand why at this point a person would be disinclined to 
spend any more time on site than necessary. Mm. And certainly anyone who has worked on site will know, but who also works in a shop will, I think, agree that it's a hardship not having access to your table saw. (laughs) not have access (laughs) to a really nice bench, you know, and all the tools. But working on site, you learn to improvise, and I used to hate it. And I have learned to love it because it turns into this whole other set of challenges. Definitely. I think maybe a lot of it for me is that slight insecurity feels more vulnerable obviously I'm not tucked away in my safe little workshop and I can almost make all the mistakes I like. I remember earlier last year I made a door and fitted a small little door in the front of a shop. I was probably in the shop for an hour it took to hang this door um, to kind of build the, the door jams and all of that and I stressed about that hour to hang a door. I've hung loads of doors. This is nothing difficult. And I know I can do it with the basic tools I can carry in one hand. But for some reason, I stressed about it for ages. And I and I filled my car with almost every tool I own. It's like, oh, just in case this happens. What if this happens? Or what if this happens? Um, and I think that's, I think a lot of that is down to practice and or lack of because it's just not what I've done a significant amount. And yeah, I think it's that kind of almost nervous energy of working under a customer's eye. Absolutely. I can relate to all of that. Oh my God, decades. <laughs> but I mean, I think in my case, to answer your question, Shane, I think, first of all, I think, I mean, I don't think, I know that many woodworkers look down on built-in stuff because it is often built with sheet materials rather than solid wood using joinery methods appropriate to sheet materials, all of which are looked down on by a certain percentage of woodworkers who, many of whom don't make their living at it, but, you know, who understandably appreciate hand-cut joinery and traditional joints such as dovetails and mortise and tenon joints and all kinds of hand-applied and hand-wrought detail. I get all of that, but I do think it's unfortunate that people are, many people are so dismissive of built-ins because of what you both were saying earlier. Built-ins can make a total, they can completely transform a room visually in terms of its architectural character and certainly in terms of its functionality. But Shane, to answer your question about have you ever been tempted to make something fancier or whatever, I have over the years done things such as incorporate a carved freeze into a built-in, you know? But these days, I generally, I really take my cues from the house. And for me, just to cite a recent example, I had a customer ask me to design and build a set of cabinets for the entryway of their 1920s house. So, you know, it's an entryway. It's going to be highly visible. One of the first things people see when they visit the house. I looked around for comparable built-ins that were original to the house and found found one in an upstairs bedroom. Now that's, you know, if you're looking at built-ins and historic design from a sophisticated perspective, you understand that there's a big difference traditionally between an entryway and a bedroom because old houses that were built for any but the most down-to-earth working people were very heavy on distinguishing between rooms for public consumption and those for just the family or the servants. So, Mm -hmm. for example, in a 1920s bungalow, you will often find that there is more elaborate trim, such as trim with a back band, Um, in all of the downstairs rooms, whereas the upstairs rooms don't have that detail. The downstairs rooms may all have oak floors, and the upstairs floors may be southern yellow pine, that kind of thing. So a bedroom built-in is going to be quite different from, I mean, in in terms of original architecture, from a built-in in the entryway, which would have been intended to welcome guests as well as family members to the home. So for me, 
I wanted this thing to look as though it might have been original to the house, so I really based the design very closely on the one in the bedroom, but with upgraded features that were more typical of the downstairs interior. So, for example, I bought salvaged crystal knobs for the doors and used mm -hmm. architectural size butt hinges instead of cabinet size so that the large doors, the three doors across this thing, would look like they had been made by a carpenter, you know, when the house was built. And it's so funny when you take into account the long-standing disparagement of carpenters versus cabinet makers and furniture makers. I don't know how widespread that is now, but when I was starting out 40 years ago, it was, it was a big deal. Like, don't call me a carpenter. I'm a cabinet maker. You know, it's yeah. better than carpentry. Yeah. I have long since abandoned that stupid prejudice. And um, because I always think, you know, my stuff wouldn't have a place to go were it not for the people who know how to frame a roof. And yeah. so, so for me, the special details that I incorporated are all completely understated. What's special to me is the design in terms of really paying attention to the original proportions that were used in the house for original millwork. The proportions, the materials, frame and panel doors that are inset with drawers that have a half overlay face, all of these details. My way of being impressive is to make what I build beautifully proportioned and basically look like it was built by the carpenters who fitted out the house originally. So I'm actually most impressive when I'm invisible if you get that. But yeah, yeah. but the other thing that is impressive to anyone who knows about how things are made is that, oh my God, this person actually used traditional butt hinges that had to be mortised into the face frame and yeah. the doors. You know, there's traditional joinery as well. And so to me, this is in no way, I mean, of course, it's not like, whoa, blow your socks off or blow your mind, knock your socks off, whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, like some people, I'm trying to think of, I mean, there are some incredible craftspeople out there and I am not one of them. <laughs> I am not trying to, you know, knock anyone's socks off. I'm trying to be practical and understated and do work I love that makes my clients' homes work better. You know, it's really quite simple. So my whole thing is completely different from I want to build stuff for rich, famous people who are important with a capital I. Like, everyone's important you know and the people yeah. who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford my work but they saved up and they really value what I do you know how does anyone not appreciate that that means a lot to me yeah definitely have you struggled to get the work the way you want to do it or I mean you you said to me you work for a lot of people with moderate budgets and I, I, I actually spoke to to someone earlier this week who was just like how is that that's not even possible how could anyone do that have you have you struggled in that regard or have you always had work or have you had to make sacrifices to be able oh, to do that all it of it all of it and and so of course it's possible to do work for people with moderate budgets the first thing you have to do is define what you mean by moderate which is all over the map because people will say oh god i don't get paid anywhere near like what i'm worth but then you find out what they earn and you're like whoa I've never made that much in a year, you know? And so this is why yeah. I frequently do things that shock people, like tell people I've never made more than 45,000 American dollars in a year. You know, yeah, of mm -hmm. course my gross business revenue is way higher than that because it includes the cost of all the materials and the tools yeah. and maintenance and insuring the shop and blah, 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 tons of other expenses, but they are not my income. They just keep the business going. You know, the first thing is there, A, 
define your terms. What's modest or moderate? B, there are always, if you need the work and are inclined to do it, there are ways you can make your work more affordable. Now, you may not want to do those things. Like, you may not want to build something out of Baltic birch plywood with biscuit joints and screws and paint it. But as long as it's a really cool-looking design and and I'm building it well, it's going to be well-built. It's not going to fall apart. It's not going to, like, delaminate, you know. It will be yeah. well-built, and I will give my clients written instructions about how to care for it to keep it looking good and functioning well. I don't see what's not to like. Now, occasionally I'll get an email inquiry from someone saying, I've got this thing you know, I need to match this thing built of two by fours and so-and-so referred me to you. And I'm like, I have to work at being polite because I'm like, I can't believe that person <laughs> referred you to me for this. But, you know, it, you know, if I had more time, I would be glad to work with you on it, you know, just to help you out. But I don't right now. I mean, you know, you have to constantly sort of be like a a um, sheepdog, a border collie, and say yes, yes to this, yes to this, yes to this, no to that, you know. And, but I mean, having to rely on your work for a livelihood, and for much of my career, I have not had a partner or a husband. And so, you know, it makes you a lot more appreciative for jobs that you might otherwise be sufficiently spoiled that you can turn down. But when people really appreciate the work you do, I don't know. I mean, that means a lot to me. It's, you know, I'm not, I'm just, I've never felt the need to show off in that way or base my self-worth on how fancy my joinery or inlay could be, whatever. You know, I want to do those things because they're challenging and they're satisfying and people often appreciate them, but I don't want to base my self-worth on them. I'd rather base my self-worth on knowing I can do what I need to do and do it well and bringing to my work a type of work which we all know is more expensive than most people can afford, even at the lower ranges. I, I like to feel like I can provide people who couldn't otherwise afford something nice with an opportunity to live with something nice, you know, to the extent that I can. Definitely. And I think if, as a business person as well, if you're in a position to, to do that, to kind of take the jobs on where there's there's value to it beyond the monetary value to you right as the maker right like i did a i did a set of hedgehog house kits this year <laughs> what is that um, exactly um i i said the same thing when they asked me to do it um and so it's, it's for a local primary school and it, they they're gonna rescue some hedgehogs and they want these little houses for them to live in and they've cut holes in all the fences so there's these hedgehog highways and it's fantastic and I got entirely invested in it before I even agreed to do it and that was the kind of thing and I and I'm not necessarily in the position to be able to take on jobs that that don't really make enough money but this one felt like there was so much value to it beyond that price tag like they make these kits i bundle them all together and then um the idea was i go and put them together with the kids covid meant that didn't happen someone else had to do it but anyway the kids put the kits together and then now there's hedgehogs in them there was such a satisfaction and such a kind of wholesome value to that job that it wasn't fine joinery it was rough sawn rough sawn larch cheap local timber and rough as you like not in line with the work i kind of in inverted commas pride myself on specializing in but it 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 felt just as valuable if not more so than the high-end pieces that i've done just because of the whole story that went along with it so i think i think yeah you're spot on if you've got a if you've got the opportunity to do so i think i think it's a real shame to to shy away from or turn away those jobs that aren't that aren't the so say high-end important jobs well the other thing is shane you were talking about getting the work and that has always been a challenge i mean it is a case of feast or famine for many of us and i will say that while 
I think it's certainly best to gain intrinsic satisfaction from doing a job on its own merits, such as you just did with the hedgehog houses or the kit. <laughs> um, yeah. Doing that kind of work can bring you work in the future that is paid. Definitely. And I think it's really important. I mean, when business is slow during the great recession i went through it was just the most grueling depressing time for me in terms of not having enough paying work but what i did was i used that time to do other work that i wouldn't otherwise have been able to do because i would have been too busy earning a living and one of those jobs was putting together this book on historic preservation, this book of essays. And then there yeah. were other jobs I did, like building the sideboard that I did, which is on the cover, a second version of it is on the cover of my book about English arts and crafts furniture. I would yes. never have had the luxury of building that original sideboard had it not been for having no paid work at the time. So yes, it meant I had to use my credit card, pay for things that I would otherwise be paying for out of my checking account. But it was a way of investing in future opportunities to do the kind of work I love. And going back again, Shane, to your question, I've the whole process over the course of my career has been, okay, when you've got work, you do all the paying work you can and when you don't have enough paid work you do the kind of spec work that you hope to get commissions to build and mm -hmm. make that visible put it out there you know most of yeah. this was before i was really involved with social media and stuff so that might mean doing a local show or a national show it might, which also costs a lot of money and takes a lot of effort. It might mean giving talks locally to organizations that are somehow in line with the kind of work I do. So in my case, a talk at um, the History Center locally or a talk at City Hall about green building and historic preservation or all kinds of things like that. There, there are all ways of using the time you would otherwise be gainfully employed in order to create opportunities for future employment. And the big difference in this case is that when you're doing spec work, you have the opportunity to show people the kind of work you really would like to be paid to do. And yeah. I have found that that has, over the years, you know, resulted in a certain, I have a reputation for doing certain kinds of work. And they're exactly the kinds of work I really, really love to do. And that has not been by accident, you know? Even when you feel like you don't have work and you, you know, you're like, nobody wants me. What happened? Did someone spread some awful rumor about my work? I mean, you just don't know. And, um, mm. but that's when you have the opportunity to work on getting future work. And so I've learned to regard it as a valuable, potentially very fruitful time, even though it is terrifying financially. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And and I don't really know what to add to that necessarily. I, I, think, I think you've found something and it's actually really good to hear that pass. Um, I'm thinking very specifically of a friend I know in the Blue Mountains who has recently started getting into to kitchen cabinet making and he, he feels constantly like a little bit like he's a fraud and sometimes like he's not in the right industry or that he's struggling or he doesn't know where work is going to come from or whether or not he has a style and, and I think hearing something like your experience might come as a bit of a relief or he's going to call me after hearing this and tell me that I need to shut up. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, it's it's been really really good to to hear you talk about your experience in that regard oh, uh, well it's unvarnished it's the truth <laughs> yeah. which i think is the only thing that's valuable because you know we can all make up stories but i don't find them very valuable if i mean what's really inspiring is to see what people make of their lives limited resources you know well yeah, yeah i mean that goes back to that kind of depression era building and and depression era furniture is some of my favorites for that exact reason you're seeing exactly that what people made 
for themselves. You wrote a you wrote about a depression era piece in one article for a website at one point. I think there can be skill and refinement, and it can be made well with with good construction and and solid timber. But they're often made quickly and crudely to serve a purpose because that's more important at the time to have that thing than to show off、um, decoration or、mm. anything along that line.、Yeah. And I think you might be referring to that chest of drawers with the imperfect dovetails, but that was a pre-depression piece. I think that was actually a nineteenth-century or Oh, right. Turn of the century piece, but it was built to be painted. It was not. I mean, it was made to look like. I I don't know. I wish I knew more about it actually. But、um, it was. You know, the dovetails are very imperfect, but they've held together all these decades, and even the rails. That hold the web frame for the drawers to run on are half dovetailed into the sides of the case, and so it's all it's traditional construction by hand. You know, in this piece that's clearly not a fine piece, and it was made out of、uh, wood with knots in it to be painted. You know, so it's this mysterious. Like maybe it was built by a homeowner. I don't know. But、um, I just love it because it's this weird and amazing juxtaposition of fine joinery techniques and solid wood with <laughs> deal, the cheapest English like utility wood at the time, and painted. So I don't know. And and that's gonna be my、um, my contribution to the design conversation. That's my argument about <laughs> design. And that's how we got there in the end. <laughs>、um, so that a really casual segue into what's was, coming was... in future episodes, Shane. Is that what that、yeah. was? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at this radio thing. Perfect. <laughs>、um, yeah, we should. We, I think we should probably wrap up because it's, it's been about about time. Normally, at the end of these, Harry and I do a quick、um, catch up on what we've been doing. Would you be willing to share with us what you've been up to in the last week or so? Me. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is out of whack right now because I'm going through chemotherapy for cancer. So in the last week, I had one good day of working in the shop on this very simple set of built-in bookcases that I really need to get done. But I've been avoiding the shop because my white blood cell counts are low, and I'm concerned about all of my usual cuts and nicks.、Um, <clears throat> Yeah. Leading to potential infections, so I have a few kitchen design jobs that I've been working on, and I've also been working on writing. So I just my next post for the professionals blog at Fine Woodworking will be about buying medical insurance when you're self-employed. Not a sexy subject, but one with which I have become unfortunately far more familiar as a result、yeah. of my own illness. And it occurred to me that it's too important a subject not to address it at that kind of a forum. So I wrote that and sent that in, and then. I'm always working on、um, profiles that I write for Lost Art Press, so the next one will be、um, on Jenny Bauer, who does engraving and other yeah. work.、Um, yeah. So it's been a week full of variety: writing, working in the shop, drawing, design work.、Hmm. Fantastic.、Nice. What have you been doing, Shane?、Uh, what have I been doing? Oh, I just did my chair making course with Glenn Rundle, and I just got back. Oh、uh, yeah. Yeah. So we're、amazing. all sick with jealousy. <laughs>、oh. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I, it was, oh, it, it looks so、great. good. Yeah. It's. I mean, any class in general is always amazing to be able to take that time out of your、mm. out of your schedule or out of your work life to go somewhere and just work on one thing and focus on learning from someone. It's always one of the best experiences I ever have, and that there's no. It's the easy like Harry and I've talked before about this this value of of being able to focus on just the task you're doing, and there's nothing better、yeah. to get into that zone than being in a class where your teacher tells you, "All right, today for、that's、the next three hours, we're doing."、Job. This thing, right? And then that's all you're focusing on doing is is doing that and doing it better and and 
it's just the, the most pleasant zone to be in in the world. So regardless of what class you're taking, it's always amazing. But, you know, making traditional American Windsor chairs is just also something I love because I, I adore them as pieces. It's a totally different way of working than I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's a variety of skills. And there's a um, just a, a, a really important connection to what material you're using. You're thinking about how dry is the wood and how is it air drying or kill drying or green? How are you shaving? Is it straight grained? How is it? How are the legs going in? You know, in relation to how they'll expand and contract, and it's it's got everything I love about simple, knowledgeable construction and making to create kind of an understated but beautiful piece of furniture that contains really crisp lines, but then the kind of rough, natural hand tooling on yeah. it as well. Yeah, I I adored that great. whole process. It was it was a wonderful week. And then I came back, and I've been back in the workshop um, fixing a, a doweled piece of furniture, which I don't like that much, but still, it deserves my attention. And doing <laughs> a lot of um, polishing repair. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Better you than I. And what about you, Harry? Oh, I've been I've been busy, busy the last week. Um, last Monday, I got the I got the keys to the new workshop, which I'm thrilled about. I say workshop is. It's not a workshop yet. It's a, a cattle shed. What was a cattle shed years ago? Um, the the owners have kind of converted it into a into a nicer agricultural unit for me. It's all been double skinned and insulated and all of that. So I'm in the process of over the weekend. Me and a few of my friends painted it all on the inside. Um, and tomorrow's job is laying a new floor, just a stud floor. And I'm going to run power under the floor so it comes up to all the benches. And I picked up a, a nice old Norwegian wood stove that's going to sit in the corner. Oh, it's all it's all happening. It's, it's all yeah. very exciting at the moment. <laughs> really exciting. Uh, the 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 goal is that this will be set up as a as a teaching space eventually. It will be set up as my furniture making workshop for now, and slowly transition over the next couple of years into a teaching space. That's that's what we're working towards slowly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really excited because I'm going uh, to do my journeyman year next year. Part of my plan is to go to, to England and work with a few people there. And I also have to I have to spend a few weeks minimum working with you. And I'm really keen to see how, how That'd be that great. turns out. I hope you're not just painting breeze blocks. <laughs> yeah. If, <laughs> hopefully all of that's done by then and you're on to more interesting work, but... Whatever, yeah. I'll be there. I've been today. I've been working on the first in what will be a series of a series of films documenting the whole process. So the first one is kind of quite a pretty, nicely produced film introducing me and the whole workshop project and what I want it to be and kind of the whole reason I want to be doing it. And then they're going to be going forward slightly more simple, but maybe every other week, a ten minute video or so documenting what I'm doing. Yeah, so there'll be plenty of plenty of updates on it as well fantastic it's exciting thank you so much oh. for your time nancy that was yes. fantastic it's been an it's absolute dream to be able to talk to you thank <laughs> you so much <laughs> well thanks to you both yeah it's been great thank you so much and we never really know thanks how to listening. end it we we always just kind of bumble around at the end and then eventually say bye and that seems to be just how every episode goodbye <laughs> there we go done we'll call it we'll call it done there <laughs>